0: Welcome to The Deal With Yield, your podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. I'm John Zook, agronomist for Winfield United.
1: And I'm Joel Whippurfer, Digital Transformations Lead for Winfield United. Today we'll be tackling the topic of disease pressure and control in a special Yield Unsealed episode of the podcast. What this means is we'll be pulling true-false questions out of an unopened, sealed envelope and answering them on the fly here in the studio. Ready, John? Yep, you bet. All right, so first question, uh, continuous corn or continuous soybean systems carry more risk of disease than rotated acres, true or false?
0: Well, so true, both continuous systems would be the monoculture answer, are going to carry diseases for both of those crops. I guess specifically diving into, I mean, corn on corn, most of that overwinters in the plant residue. So if you have a disease or a lot of times I always talk of the UFO landings, right? If you got a circle patch in the field or you can see it on the yield map, the likelihood of that UFO landing getting bigger or the disease patch getting bigger the next year, is gonna be significantly greater cause it's gonna spread with tillage. It's gonna spread with the wind blowing the trash around, all those sorts of things. Very similar with the soybean rotation as well. Anything to add there?
1: Yeah. You know, I'm influenced by a crop budget calculator that Iowa State had, and they broke it out into a five-year rotation. And as an agronomist, if you were going corn on corn, I might assign a 20-bushel yield loss to corn on corn. And for soybeans, I don't know, what would you assign there? Five? Five? Yep, five, eight, maybe okay, is what so I was, let's was coming
0: you, to my mind. But. You
1: know, In this continuous corn rotation, you're able to produce 180 bushels. In continuous beans, you're able to produce 45 bushels. But when you rotate, you're able to get 50. And what was interesting is when you look at this on a five-year scenario, one of the things that it suggested, given your assumptions for yield loss, was that a two-year corn followed by one year of soybeans, was able to break up more of that disease cycle and was more financially profitable at that time when I ran the budget. But it was just interesting to think of some of the best soybeans that I see out there oftentimes have two years of corn preceding them. And you start to maybe reduce some of the fusarium. You reduce some of the sudden death that, you know, those diseases that overwinter and then inoculum builds up in the soil.
0: Yep. You know, that corn, corn, bean rotation is definitely a rotation for the soybeans, but be ready for how do you manage it in the corn. So I always think, say, if you got to rotate, whether it's beans on beans or corn on corn, there's really ways we can manage around it, right? So yeah, Iowa State maybe does a great job with their calculator, but I would say, hey, 180 bushel corn, I can manage and I can probably be a better manager than that corn on corn. And that becomes being a good agronomist. So can you scout it? Can you do a fungicide app? Can you do a a micronutrient app? Whatever it might be to keep that crop as healthy as you can. And for soybeans, I think it really comes down to seed treatment. You mentioned the fusarium or the SDS maybe this isn't a disease question. This turns maybe into an insect problem is, is I think the biggest thing is going to be the the soybean cyst nematode, which that boils down to a seed treatment. How do we protect that soybean and get it off to a good start? It's a seed treatment. It's a fundicide to make sure that none of those diseases get started in
1: that plant. Okay, so rotation and management are the two... Is everything is true right up until rotation and management is the butt?
0: Yeah, did we answer all the other questions with just that first
1: one? Or I, I think we might have answered all the true we false questions. Why it? don't you ask me one? In the
0: absence of disease, certain fungicides can boost yield potential because they help plants photosynthesize later into the season.
1: Oh man, this one's fun. Actually, the answer plot data this year, we actually started to try to sort this answer out. And, you know, one of the things that farmers who use fungicide, they kind of consistently say two things about it. The stay green was a little longer into the season and typically the standability is pretty good. So those are two non-disease specific reasons to use fungicide that farmers talk about the increased harvest speed and some of the efficiency that they gain there. I think about plant growth regulators and fungicides have as many fungal pathogen inhibition properties as they do plant growth regulator possibilities. And so I think about the suppression of ethylene gas. So think about your bananas on the countertop and if you would leave them in a plastic bag, they are actually gassing off a nature's ripening agent, ethylene. And what you see in when you apply fungicide is it tends to slow That ethylene production in the plant, or that plant's natural dying off or senescence. And so you know some of the yield bumps that we see there—the longer stay green, more photosynthetic activity, maybe a little bit more yield packed into the kernel during those times. But the answer plots this year, John. You know, and I love this because you're probably one of the regional agronomists that got to go out and scout for disease multiple times a year to try to get us a rating on if the diseases were present.
0: Yeah, and part of it was in Minnesota, southern Minnesota last year. It was hard to find any disease that was worth rating. So going back to our question, can we photosynthesize later? If that's what gave us the answer. Answers we're looking at right now.
1: Yeah. So on low disease sites last year, we gained about 11.6 bushels in corn yields regardless of the disease pressure.
0: No disease pressure, 11.6 bushel.
1: Yep. Uh, what it- about with? Yeah, in high disease pressure sites, we saw a 13.7 bushel increase in corn yield. And, you know, I think this is the interesting part where we look at the response to fungicide scores. If I particularly, you know, we, we have that Skywalker unit that raises hydraulically up over the corn and goes and does the small plot work. When you look at the hybrids with a high response to fungicide at low disease sites, they were up around half, 17 bushel. So if you've got a hybrid that has a low response to fungicide and it's at a low disease site, that one, you know, was probably a little below break even at six to seven bushels was the return. Low disease pressure, low response to fungicide. But John, these hybrids that have the high response to fungicide at low disease sites pulling down 16, 17 bushels on average, that goes against the whole fungicide, prevent fungal pathogens from attacking your corn theory. So
0: in thinking about disease, maybe what we found out was it's maybe not necessarily a function of disease. That's definitely a component. That's part of the disease triangle. But one of the bigger components would be knowing how that hybrid is going to respond to the environment, whether it's a disease environment or a photosynthesizing environment. The fungicide gives it the opportunity to express its yield potential that way.
1: Now, if you had high disease and you had a low response to fungicide hybrid, you still got 12 bushels, which probably covers the break even to it. And if you had high disease and you had a high RTF, it was closer to 15 bushel, 14, 15 bushel for that. So, you know, I think this enters into the arena that the new classes of fungicides are getting really specific on diseases. Have you And and so how have you found recommending these new classes of fungicide and matching those up with the diseases that are present?
0: So maybe we match them up to the diseases, but I think it's still a broad spectrum approach and more so not specific diseases, but how do you gain the longevity of the product? So a lot of these three modes of action fungicides allow you to gain longer protection later on into the season. The one thing that you missed, Joel with that data set that as an agronomist, I just kind of geek out with, I mean, we had all the numbers and we talked about it, but you skipped over the machine, right? (laughs) The thing that actually did it, and that's a Skywalker. Yeah. How impressive is that? We had 41 answer plots. 225 hybrids tested in 2018, and all of this was with and without a fungicide V5 and VT, and across the nation. There is no other data set that has that amount of information that we can glean those results to say, hey, this is a hybrid that you should put a fungicide on. Doesn't matter what the disease is, this is a hybrid you shouldn't. So, I mean, The machine is what makes that thing go. And that's called the answer plot, right? That's the machine.
1: The answer plot crews run all of their machines out of one location in the U.S. So we actually have a centralized dispatch for it. Being that there's one place in Vincent, Iowa where all these machines sit, there's a bunch of smart guys down there that sit around thinking about, you know, crop management and how they get these trials done. And they actually put together several patents on that particular machine so you can truck the machine down the highway to the next plot and then when it gets in there, it can get up over top of the crop without destroying any of the crop that's underneath it as it goes through. Now, the ability for it to get through high corn is really interesting. But John, just around the corner, I was talking to one of the folks from Bayer about their short corn project. And they've <laughs> actually talked about corn that doesn't get much more than five, six feet tall. And that would open up some real possibilities for some of these medium clearance sprayers, you know, which are marketed as high clearance sprayers, yep. to be able to get through the crop multiple times of year. So what would you do if disease pressure, you could get at it multiple times a year just at the right time? How would that change farming?
0: I mean, I think that it allow you to have more of that targeted approach like you mentioned is how do we be more specific to disease? Do we know where that disease is coming and how it's coming in? Now it's not about the timing of the application or having the restriction of say, hey, the crop is too tall. We can't get through it in a timely manner. Hey, you mentioned patents. Did you spill any secrets? Are we going to have to like, cut that segment out, or are we okay there? <laughs> Maybe should make a note there.
1: We'll have to make a note there and, re- and have our attorneys. As your attorney, we're going to review that one. Got it. Okay. So, John, here's true-false for you. Most of the commonly used fungicides in corn have received a supplemental label for tar spot, a relatively new disease threat in the Corn Belt. Have
0: you seen tar spot? Uh, most of the time I've seen on maple trees. Okay, But uh, yeah, definitely see. I mean, we had some last year in Southern Men, had some show up on some maple. I already got a question about it here in 2019. Wisconsin had some of it in our answer plot too last year. So it is coming, but most of the time it's more of a Southern disease from what I see, and, and that works its way up. Overwintering, I guess it doesn't necessarily spend a lot of time, but the question is now is with the year that we've had, is the climate switching or trending in the direction that we might see new diseases or anomalies that we normally don't see? And that might be something that one of these ones that is popping in here like that.
1: So certainly there's some changing weather patterns there that are emerging, but I also find that when these new diseases come out, nobody's ever seen them, or at least you have to go back a long ways for people to have seen them, but we almost extincted them in our breeding pipelines to the point where we stopped selecting for it. I remember the gosses wilt disease that came in probably almost 10 years ago now, and we had almost made that thing extinct in the majority of the U.S., with the exception of Nebraska, yep. and now all of a sudden we had stopped selecting for breeding And of course, as a breeder, you've got one thing on your mind when you're out there trying to make these crosses. You've got productivity. And Mm -hmm. when you're breeding specifically for productivity, there's this other intersection where the higher the yield you go, you're oftentimes giving up some disease pressure. So could that be playing into when these new diseases come out?
0: Well, I want to give all the breeders all the credit they deserve for what they do, right? And they'll, I mean,
1: they'll take every bit oh, of it. You if bet. you have ever talked to a breeder, they'll take all the credit that you can give them. <laughs> you bet. And so
0: that could definitely be a part of it. And as we go south and we have more existence of the tar spot, I think it becomes real. The one thing that I see in the tar spot in the area that I work is a lot of times it comes in pretty late in the season and it has to be at pretty extreme pressure to really see the difference and affected in, in yield. So it's funny that we we just talked about how important photosynthesis late was, but remember that we still have to have a significant infection late enough in the season to restrict that photosynthesis to give us a yield reduction. So a lot of times the question is, I have it or I've seen it, but did it truly reduce my yield or was there something I can do to help protect against that? Yeah, awesome. You got a question for me? Yeah. Uh the resistance level of a hybrid determines whether a fungicide application will provide any benefit. So this maybe goes right back into the question that we were just talking about is yeah. the breeding. Part of it.
1: Yeah, I, I love that. You know, and going back to the answer plot data and how we answered that, certainly there's hybrids out there that have high disease resistance. In simple terms, somebody's you know in the past has talked about these as defensive style hybrids where they have a high disease tolerance. They maybe have low yield opportunity. And I think when we talk about this specific topic, you really want to get around the economics of growing corn today, that it's only so much fun to haul bushels to town if it's not profitable, that it's about optimizing inputs per bushel. And there are certain hybrids that maybe can go for top-end yield that need that fungicide protection as well, but maybe there's some fields that you don't have the disease pressure on that can't go to the top-end yield, and mm-hmm. you maybe can carry a disease package within that hybrid where it's more of a mid-tier price bag of corn, and you can get by without applying a fungicide on those acres. But then there's also some acres, John, that you can really swing for the fences and drive that productivity.
0: So, Joel, what it comes down to in the end is having a distinct farm plan where you know those acres that are, number one, have the yield potential there. You've set it up. You've managed for it. And then, number two, maybe those acres that you need to be marginal on or manage a little bit differently to make the economics work. And that's the ability of knowing how that hybrid is going to respond. And I think, really, that's reflected in the RTF score, I think, is what that boils down to. We would really don't have no way of necessarily diving into the genetics Maybe we can dive into the genetics, but in the end, I don't think we're ever going to surface with, here's what the grower should do, because it's going to go down to look at the RTF score, and that's probably going to give you your best bet of how you can treat that and manage it accordingly.
1: So I want to flip back to the whole uh, new fungicide components that are coming out, and I'm going to rebrand this question for soybeans, because I know you're a soybean fan. Most of the commonly used-
0: Was that a joke
1: (laughs) I love soybeans. Who, yeah, who doesn't love some soybeans? Most of the commonly used fungicides in soybeans have received a label for soybean white mold, which is not a relatively new disease, but seems to be a disease that regionally comes up. And you know, of course, those sclerotinia overwinter in the soil, and so are all fungicides the same? True or false? When it comes to soybean white mold?
0: Uh, definitely a false. But this comes with a lot of baggage and agronomically, I think we got to step back and go, how are we actually, when does white mold infecting into the plant? Okay. And the soybean plant, we have the opportunity to get white mold infection after we see the first flower. So R1. So what that tells me is if you don't have that fungicide on there, be prior to infection, meaning prior to R1 or the potential of infection, you're probably going to get white mold. You might spray the fungicide. It might help stop the movement of white mold or protect the new flowers coming up. But I always can go back to the spot where white mold originates, and I can see exactly what flower got infected because I can look at that soybean plant and go right down to the node, and the node is where those sclerotinia start to go out, and that's where the white mold spores. Okay. so maybe the fungicide foliar does have a play but we gotta get it out there early and I'm still not convinced, I haven't seen any very convincing data I should say about some of these seed treatment labels that are coming too. White mold infects a plant at flowering. It's hard for me to believe that you can put something on the seed treatment to get it to carry. Now could you put something on a seed treatment to get a healthier plant that can have inherent ability to protect itself? Sure. But then we're protecting against a lot of things and it's not just the white mold plate. A lot of the talk on the white mold with fungicides I think is sometimes more of an emotional kind of conversation and yeah, the label's a label, but make sure we're following that and it's an early application. I got like three other things I would do before I would put a fungicide on then to manage for white mold than if I was just going to say, hey, here's what I, you know, Put a fungicide on it, it'll fix your white mold. No, You should probably do three other things first.
1: You know, as a soybean agronomist, you have some strange hobbies looking at flowers and infection points. But one of the things I found interesting (laughs) regionally, John, was when you go up to the valley and you start talking about edible beans up there, navy beans, kidney beans, those things, those things, if you yell white mold across the field, they'll curl up and die. And so a lot of times they actually- Maybe
0: that's just your breath. You just (laughs) breathe on them and they kind of pucker a little bit. Maybe I should
1: brush more. But one of the things that I saw on the labels is if a fungicide claims white mold protection in kidneys and some of the edible beans, then it likely has some protection against soybean white mold. But sometimes I see them claim soybean white mold and it's the same sclerotinia, it's the same disease. So I kind of look for that label. And if it's not good enough to be used in edibles, I would question if the soybean white mold comparison is good enough to be used in soybeans.
0: So that's a really good validation point. And- I'm kind of ashamed I didn't bring that up because since you brought it up, I have to go to my other two things that I do before I even apply a fungicide. So if you are going to apply a fungicide, do what Joel told you to do. Look in the animal label and go back and find that right one. But if you think you're just going to apply a fungicide and you go, oh, we got a white mold year and I'm going to put a fungicide to save myself from white mold, you're probably two steps behind. The first thing you should do is choose a bean that has a good white mold rating. Okay, if you got a bean that has a terrible white mold rating, What are you doing thinking you're going to spray a fungicide on it to fix white mold? That's number one. Number two is we have things called variable rate planting, and we can write maps to do that, and particularly, we know if we have an acre that is susceptible to white mold because we've had it there before, maybe it's a low spot, we have fogs or inversions coming in, now write a variable rate planting map to lighten up the population to keep that canopy a little open so you don't have as many infection points. Then I would say, if you got those two things down, go into a fungicide application to help protect. And then my fourth thing, if you have white mold, is spray it with a herbicide. Have you heard of that? Cobra, maybe? Yeah. To try to burn it off. But that's like four, right? A lot of times in my area, I got guys going right to, hey, I'll just spray cobra because I think I got white mold to burn those leaves off. That's not what soybeans want. We have three good decisions to make before that. And I think we got to always remember that with white mold. Number five would be plant corn. Well, that would maybe be number one, right? If you got white mold, it's plant (laughs)
1: corn. (laughs) Okay. You got a question for me?
0: Yeah. So, an especially cold winter will kill all fungal inoculum in the soil. True or False.
1: Ooh, you know, I don't know. I'd have to phone a friend on that. Maybe I feel like you're asking me the question. You probably know the answer to this. Uh, It gets cold in the winter. And I usually think about insects dying. But even on the insects, in order for it to be cold enough for insects, it has to be 15 degrees for more than three to five days at a two to three inch soil temperature depth which a lot of times when we get snow cover, it doesn't get down that deep. So I would just, the agronomist to me says, I'm skeptical that diseases aren't independent of overwintering temperatures.
0: So because of the, I, I guess I would have to agree with you, because of the way this is worded, fungal inoculum in the soil, that means we have a soil-borne disease. Typically, if they're soil-borne, they're pretty good at overwintering. One cool side note, since we had the polar vortex like every year for the last five years, but this year was extremely bad. Negative 30. When we had the snow cover, our soil temperatures, you made the comment of, hey, we got to get below 15. Our soil temperatures, a lot in southern Minnesota, we had negative 30 degree above ground, still had 30 degrees below ground at that four inch mark. So we were frozen and we were frozen deep, hence the frost on all the gravel roads. But what we see is we don't have to get down far enough below. So really we don't get those temperature extremes to restrict that inoculum.
1: Yeah. So without turning to the old Google machine here, I think we've maybe debunked that diseases are affected by cold temperatures. The human types are still affected by cold temperatures.
0: hmm So, hey, the one thing that I do want to add on that though is remember a lot of these soil-borne diseases need an unhealthy plant to infect. So typically what I do mid-season, say V5 to V8, is every time I go out, I cut the crown, I split that crown open. And what I mean is I split that plant in half and then I look at the crown or where that growing point's at. And if that growing point is discolored, if it's brown, if it's got some, uh, sometimes I'll even see it bad enough, it'll be black. Typically what that means is the sugars, the natural sugars in the stock have been removed. And a lot of times that introduces or allows that infection point. Those sugars are a natural barrier of defenses. And if we remove those sugars or we have a stressed plant, a lot of times those soil-borne diseases will move in we'll have a lot more stock issues, a lot more standabilities later in the season. So with that, one way to scout for it is make sure that your crown is always, I always say, make sure it's crispy and white like an apple. And if you got that, you know you have a healthy plant. If you don't, maybe earlier fungicide in the corn, like a V5 timing would help with the plant health that way.
1: Awesome. You're like uh, you're like one of those fortune tellers. When it's cold and wet, you start to foretell the early season sins of plant stock rots into the later season stock standability story. I had just seen way too many brown and black crowns. I just,
0: that's one thing that uh, I think we can save. And that's a savable point, right? That's a thing we can
1: actually actively go out and take care of. All right, John, true Ooh. or false, fungicides don't become resistant to chemistry like weeds do.
0: Uh. That would be false. Fungicides will be, or diseases will become resistant to fungicides. And I mean, we know that, but the thing is, is most of the time we're spraying these herbicides multiple times at lower use rates and perhaps without an adjuvant, right? Without the coverage. So what we want to make sure is if we're using the right rate, we're getting the right coverage, and typically the label's designed to help protect against resistance. The other thing is always modes of action. And most of these newer fungicides are using multiple molds of action. That helps with resistance as well.
1: The rate topic is really important because getting that full dose to the plant allows the full spectrum of control down there. I know I was visiting uh, a basic manufacturer a couple years ago, and I I found it was interesting when we got into the rate conversation, they had a lab full of Petri dishes. They were using inoculum on these Petri dishes, and then they were using different rates to see what percent control they were. It was also kind of interesting to see the other uses in the consumer world that they had spun out for fungicides, like drywall board for your bathroom that resists mold, of course, an application of certain fungicides on your drywall or you know, embedded in the product was how they were diverting some of that active ingredient.
0: Okay. So because it was in a petri dish and you triggered my attention, like, did they make sure that they could surround it with a fungicide and stop that disease from traveling? Did they do that kind of stuff as well? You ask better questions than I do. Okay. Well, all right. <laughs>
1: We'll take that as a no then. Yeah. Some of us got to the 400 level courses in college, John, and didn't go any higher. You, you maybe got to the 1,000 or 800s.
0: Well, the thing is, though, is going back to the comment, some of these multiple modes of action prevented that we use a term preventative or curative, right? And then is it mobile in the plant? So I guess that was where my question was. How do we get the mobility in the plant? How do we get them to move through? But then not so much where it can rain and all of a sudden we got a bunch of water coming on the plant and we flush the rest of that through or all the active ingredient goes to the tip of the leaf where we really don't see a lot of that infection. So it's important when we're doing those assays in the little petri dish that we're looking at those sorts of things as well.
1: Yeah, plant mobility, you know, that's not one of the things that fungicides are really known for all that well is typically, you know, it, it's a, and this is why when we talk about spray application technology, you really want to get full coverage using, you know, a, a 15 to 20 gallon per acre rate. <laughs> Did you, do you want to go higher? I
0: got a, I got a true false question. You're going to go through and answer it before I can even have a okay, chance give to ask, the true ask false. it. Okay. This one's for you now adjuvants shouldn't be used with fungicides because of the concern for arrested
1: ear development? Oh, man, that's such a good question. You know, once upon a time, this is a once upon a time story, John. Once (laughs) upon a time, fungicides were not sprayed with adjuvants, and the control and consistency of the fungicides weren't very good. Then people started to look at, well, maybe I can go a little bit earlier, and they were encouraged to go earlier, but they knew that fungicides evaporated, so they started to add things like oils to them. Well, lo and behold, some of the oils had these things called NPEs, Nonylphenol ethoxylates sprayed before tassel during ear development. You know, that ear is developing kind of V5 to V8 around, and then V8 to 12 kind of developing its length. One of the things that we would see is it was like a little beer can of an ear, where the ear was stunted back, and this is, you know, all the way at full maturity. You'd go 10 good ears in a row, and then one little ear that looks like a beer can. Can, a crumpled mm-hmm. up beer can and what we were finding was is that in some of these additives that used older technologies, they were causing Arrested Ear Syndrome because of the adjuvant package in it. So here we were, you know, being good stewards and trying to use adjuvants and, and get them in there. And the adjuvant was the thing that was causing the problem when you were off-label spraying before tassel time. So one of the things that the product development team did in Winfield United was we went and searching for non non ethoxylate products. And that's actually what you'd find in in the Interlock family of products, uh, including Masterlock. And it was particularly in the non ionic surfactants that stick and spread to the leaf and help that plant disperse the fungicide across the leaf. Because, you know, remember in fungicides, and this is what we were just talking, we need to spread this stuff out. A lot of times the mobility of fungicides can go from the top of the leaf to the bottom of the leaf and what they would call translaminar. Yep. Some of the fungicides will move laterally and kind of zip to the tip and you may even get a little bit of tip burn, but if you want good disease protection, you need, you know, in this order. You need gallons per acre. You need droplets per square inch, which is probably using a a flat fan or some smaller spray nozzle. You need an adjuvant that can keep that pattern in a controllable way where it's not drifting off into fines because as you make smaller droplets, more goes into a fog. And then there's this other piece that you need to drive it down into the canopy. You need to maintain that droplet's velocity because on a corn plant, a lot of those diseases we just talked about the whole episode were soil borne. And if they're soil borne, they're gonna come up from the bottom. And that's the hardest place at 110 miles an hour with five gallons per acre or three gallons per acre to get it down into the canopy. So that master lock, interlock family of products really helps in a couple of ways. It does not have the nonalphenol ethoxylates that cause arrested ear syndrome. It helps stick and spread that fungicide to the leaf. And you know, these fungicides can't go into the leaf if they're dry. Right. So it keeps a little bit of humectancy right on the leaf surface so that fungicide can be absorbed into the plant and be effective at protecting the plant.
0: So I got two important things to note. You said we need to have smaller, finer droplets, but we still need to get them down into the canopy. So, hey, if I was going to go spraying at 15 gallons an acre, Joel, I'm going to go to 20. What's that going to give me? give me better coverage, but still maybe doesn't give you better droplets down in the canopy. And so making sure, I always play a game, would you rather? So then guys will go, well, I'll go more gallons, but I'll use bigger nozzles so I can get bigger droplets to go down in the canopy. Well, would you rather have one 500 micron droplet for coverage or 350 micron droplets or four 350 micron droplets? And the answer should be, hey, I'd rather have more droplets because velocity-wise they're going to travel in. And a lot of times that's what the adjuvant is going to help you do with that smaller droplet and those more gallons, give you more droplets that can reach down into the canopy. Sure. Then the other thing to mention on that was what, the label says so a lot of times what we just talked about you go okay well i look at the fungicide label and it still says no adjuvants a lot of these fungicide labels will say can't use the adjuvant until after vt unless you have the data provided to you by the supplier to say that it doesn't cause a residue. so everything you talked about with the non-phenyl ethoxylates in the adjuvant in the NIS needs to be proved out. And Masterlock is one of the adjuvants that I've seen over and over again that has that data that says it doesn't cause arrested or it doesn't contain NPEs in it.
1: Yeah, and and that's a big milestone there for Winfield United to work through the basic manufacturer's partner who have all this innovation sitting there, but that innovation's got to be delivered to the plant lease surface effectively. But to be able to get a supplemental label or a, a label that allows us to use the spray droplet technology like we do was a pretty good collaborative story of how the industry's innovation comes to market. You've been listening to The Deal with the Old Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us online or on your podcast app. And for more episodes, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and thedealwithyield.com.